Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. Michael Trout founded the Infant Parent Institute, a private clinical practice, consultation, and training facility dedicated to understanding the relationship between early social experiences and how our lives form. Now retired, Mr. Trout remains active as an author and regular speaker on early development and problems of attachment. This episode is the third in a 12-part series with Michael Trout. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, or our Podbean page. Be sure to subscribe and tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So hello everybody, great to have all of you back for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast and I'm here with uh, Michael Trout for my continuing series with him and um, about, you know, the early days of working with mothers and babies and, and how the field developed early on and how it has continued to develop. So thanks for coming back and joining again, Michael. Very nice to be here again. Yes. And so we talked about, you know, some of this you'll be sharing your own personal experience and some of it you might be commenting on the field as a whole. So um, we'll just kind of see where where the conversation goes. Um, So in our first uh, earlier sessions, we talked about some of the ways that you were trained, which in, in in many ways were very different than training programs today. It was a lot of curiosity and wondering and thinking about possibilities together and not so much, let's do a quick assessment and launch into what these folks need, <laughs> which I think is a, a bit a bit where we've gotten to today, unfortunately. And I, I don't, I, don't th- I say unfortunately, because I'm not sure that's a superior way of working. So, as this was um, catching on more, perhaps, you know, um, Selma Freiberg had written her first book and now she was not just looking at children with disabilities, but maybe broader um, application of her ideas and her concepts. So as it moved beyond that first core group of people that you were in, um, what, what do you remember about how it evolved and how others got involved and and how people at large in our field and other places were responding to this this work. I will say one more thing uh, before you answer that. I find that even today, even in the field of social work and psychotherapy, infant parent psychotherapy still sometimes makes people think, what? What are you talking about? So, um, yes, so I, I just wanted to say that. Um, I mean, that is what you eventually started to call it, right? Yes. It was a, I'm not sure the time or the place was representative. So some people, some listeners may hear what I'm about to say and think, oh my goodness, that would never happen that way today or people wouldn't think the same way today. But 
we'll, we'll see what people think. <clears throat> One thing I should be sure to mention is that Freiburg, anticipating the very question you're asking, uh, made a requirement of all of us from the very, very beginning, even before we were actually selected as a class, but came down for an all-day seminar to begin sort of thinking together and wondering what it would be like to put together a class. She demanded that we make at least one connection with a community person and involve them heavily from the beginning. So in my case, I asked a public health nurse uh, colleague, lived actually just down the alley from, from where I lived in Cadillac, Michigan, to attend with me, and she invited another public health person. So two of them came with me to the very first seminar in Ann Arbor to be exposed directly to Freiburg and, and Vivian and Edna and Bill and so on. And that was the tone that was set for us from the very beginning. She intuited, Freiburg, I think, that this would be an isolating activity if we let it be, that to train young clinicians in a psychoanalytic method and send them off to the northern woods of Michigan could be a death knell. Uh, for for any new field. And so that turned out to be brilliant. Um, not only did I have now companions who were as exposed as I was in the very beginning, at least, to this these new ideas, but they began to talk it up amongst their colleagues, particularly in public health. And in those days, public health was deeply involved uh, with babies and families. I, I can't imagine in Northern Michigan, at least, how the field would ever have progressed without public health nurses. They talked it up not only among them, but among our other colleagues in child protection, foster care, and even in the uh, uh, judiciary, particularly in the uh, probate court, who handled many of the uh, child welfare cases in those days. And so within a very short time, in one of the uh, communities, I, I served four counties in Northern Michigan, in one of them, we established an, what we called simply the infant mental health team, thinking that maybe we could um, move the field along and move our colleagueship along if we met regularly and talked together. I made the assumption that that would be very, a very, very difficult thing to pull off. It was not. People came together with great eagerness uh, and very little criticism of a, of a thing so bizarre as mental health for babies. They not only wanted to know more, but they threw themselves in it. And these were people who, for the most part, had no clinical training at all. The, the group was not heavy on mental health people. It was uh, foster care workers, adoption workers. There was, in those days, a probate judge who was not even an attorney in that particular county. He, he was elected having been an insurance salesman. And, was, and became the judge. And one might think that would be a bad thing. It turned out to be a, a wonderful thing. He had a very open mind, and he would ask questions not only from the bench, but would come to the infant mental health study group meetings. Oh my goodness. He sent his probation officers. Um, so it was a, a very diverse group. And we sat together once a month for years and years, uh, looked at film <laughs> and talked about cases and so on. Wow. That's, that's just fascinating. 
it sure is in contrast to the way things seem to be today, where perhaps only in my world, but maybe in others, we seem to work in more in silos than we ever have. Well, yeah, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm almost not even being able to completely wrap my brain around it because it's just so different. Things are very siloed. I can't imagine a judge today participating in something like that. And in, in fact, I think depending on the various counties, judges can bring great angst to the service providers in terms of what they really think should be happening for the children and the parents. So, I mean, that is so interesting. And just that the people would, um, you know, be willing to take this time so readily to, to meet together. It just makes me kind of wonder, you know, what would happen if we were still using that model today? So, so what did happen? You know, as you talk, I'm, I'm musing about the trickle-down effect of Freiburg's way of teaching us. It occurs to me that one of the things that may have made this reach out into the community the, in the form of this study group and in the form of all the things that we did, one of the things that may have made it work is that we did not, we being the early people, the early clinicians in infant mental health, mm -hmm. did not think of ourselves as experts we knew we knew something no one else knew and we knew we knew something hardly anyone else was even thinking about but we didn't think we were so very smart because we weren't and the project made made sure that that was that that sort of modesty obtained had we been taught a strategy with constraints and limits and guidelines and rules and supervision that was mostly designed to keep us within the boundaries of, this, of the new clinical strategy, we might have gotten quite um, puffed up about ourselves, that we had something to sell, so to speak. We want you all to do it this way. Instead, what we were learning was a way of thinking about babies and their development, a way of being with mothers and fathers and babies all together, and I mean really being with, not just sitting in the kitchen of, but seriously being in with their stories. And that created an environment of modesty that was not false in the least. We were modest because we were stupid. And when we came together with all of our colleagues in the community, we just all sat down and got stupid together and then shared what wisdom we had. Suddenly I'm thinking of, AA and Al-Anon, where people make a particular point of, of not being experts at their meetings, but they share the wisdom of their experience when they sit down together. Sort of like that. Wow, so I'm, I'm trying to, in my mind, contrast with what is done today in groups. So, um, what I've been part of in groups is, is often what's called a clinical staffing, which in the end doesn't end up being very clinical, I don't think. But, um, and that's usually, you know, a child's really struggling and whatever is being done isn't working. So everyone's getting together and trying to decide 
especially with older kids, you know, should we put them in residential treatment? Do we need to move them to a different foster home? Something like that. So it's very focused on, you know, what to, to do next. And, um, well, can, I, can I interrupt? And yeah. Maybe we should be bold and say they're often focused on who done it. That is, who can we blame for this? Usually a parent. And secondly, what do you call it? So some diagnostic nomenclature. Yes. 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 Um, and then I've also been part of these. Well, well, and the other thing that often happens in, in those is the group of people suggest maybe we should try this or try that. And usually the people working directly with the child had already tried that a, a bunch of times. <laughs> so but they have to be respectful and pretend that the experts are giving them something new. So they don't always say, yeah, we tried that. Um, and then there's wrap plans. And that's usually throwing all kinds of services that may or may not be helpful at parents and having lots of people visit them and buying them a Y membership. And you know, the feedback I've gotten from parents is that feels like an invasion. I have never once had anyone say that's helpful, even though I've been in many of those meetings. Um, so that's pretty much the main ways that people gather in an interdisciplinary way that I'm familiar with today. Um, Lots of spaghetti at the wall. Just yeah, see. I mean, I'm struck by you saying a study group because that has just a totally different, that conjures up a very different image that you're, we're there to learn from each other and from the family. That's, you know, that's very different than let's see what service we could throw at folks next um, is, is what I often feel like these other meetings feel like. They're, they're, they're definitely not study groups. <laughs> I will say that. Um, what's your observation on that? Oh, I, I think it's, uh, it's pathetic. And, and it, it is just really a cover for our own helplessness. We sit in these meetings and we really don't know anything, but rather than learn about it, we just make up stuff and throw it, throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. When I was in a, the mental hospital where I began my uh, career, we had um, rounds. And that, that meant that uh, 30 to 40 people would sit around in a huge circle, usually in the ward dining room. And the psychiatrist, who usually didn't speak English and usually didn't know anything about psychiatry, because in those days, what was re what the definition of psychiatrist, according to the Mental Health Code in Illinois, was a physician engaged in the practice of psychiatry. That's it. You didn't have to have any psychiatric training whatsoever. Oh, but really? Okay. None whatsoever. Uh, but, of course, uh, because he was often ego-driven, he learned the nomenclature quickly, and that, that, began, that became the strands of spaghetti that he would throw at the, at the wall. So then the patient would be brought in and put in the middle of this huge circle, and everyone would try to suck up to the psychiatrist by asking clever questions, each person trying to one-up the other, trying to trap the patient into admitting that they were uh, lunatic or something. And then somebody would propose a diagnosis and it would be accepted or rejected. And it was all a big charade. 
designed more than anything to impress each other and to impress the psychiatrist and to get this patient locked in a box of diagnosis, uh, which did nothing, of course, to make him less mentally ill. It just gave him a, a name. And I'm afraid we, while, while not everybody has had that experience that I had, uh, so you could become disgusted and decide to never do that again. Never sit in such a circle like that again. If you're going to sit in a circle, make it a different kind of circle. Still, I think other people may, may be driven by both conscious and unconscious um, things that cause them to act the way we sometimes act in meetings, which is to not be very curious and to, to even be disrespectful in ways that aren't like us. Hmm. It's no fun anymore. Wow. And why is that? Well, in your opinion, why is it not fun anymore? Um, I think when you pull the quest for understanding out of the meeting, it becomes no fun. Surely at, at some level, we're all there for some good reason other than just to earn a paycheck or to impress our peers. We're there because we really are interested in how human beings operate. And to sit in a meeting and struggle to understand is exciting. Mm -hmm. At the end of the meeting, nobody wants to leave. It's really been fun. When you pull that out of it, when there's no real quest for understanding, there's just a quest to make a list of services that we're going to try and, and to give a diagnosis. At the end of that meeting, everybody's tired and wants to go somewhere else. We didn't learn from each other and we didn't learn from the patient in meetings like that. Hmm. One woman I trained with was about four foot eight. She was uh, German and had escaped with her husband from the resistance. She was a psychoanalyst. And she used to teach by doing, always. And so I, there are many, many, many things I remember about how she taught by doing. But one of them was that when the meeting time was over, she would stand up. You could already tell when she stood up because she was so short, but. She would stand up and that would be a profound gong of a bell. That would say, that would say we're done now. And some people took offense at that. And I thought it was a marvelous way to teach us all the principle of boundaries and limits and knowing when you're finished. Mm. I loved that. There's so many ways for meetings to help us learn that don't have to do with just making up diagnoses and coming up with ideas for what to do. It's definitely a very different way of thinking about it than, than some of what we're trying to do today. You know, I and emphasize one more time, as we think about it together, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but it occurs to me that modesty really did play a huge part in the formula of success. And I just want to emphasize 
that fact and how real it was. We were modest because we were stupid. And I think we all grew to love the state of stupidity. When, I, when, a, when a public health nurse would call me wanting to, oh, I hear you have this new uh, baby program. Uh, boy, I've got one for you. Um, the conversation would immediately turn to what her observations had been, um, not what services she's providing, but what her observations had been, what she suspects, what she worries about, and when can she take me there? Mm-hmm. Rather than when can you get the paperwork over so I can go? So in the first few years, I never made a home visit alone. I always asked the referring agent to take me there and show me. And so now we became colleagues in learning together. And on the way out to the home visit, we would talk about the case, not about services, but about what we needed to learn. And on the way home, I would sit in rapt attention as this public health nurse, far more skilled at making home visits than I. And frankly, while she usually didn't know it, far more skilled at observing and re- re- recording data in her brain than mm-hmm. I. Mm-hmm. I would love her for what she saw, what she suspected, what she thinks we ought to do next. And it would be there I'd learn things like, um, oh, one nurse I remember said on the way back from the home visit, you know, I don't think we're, we saw the baby we're supposed to see. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I think there's another baby in the back room. And I think maybe that's why the mom called me, meaning the public health nurse in the first place, but she hasn't got the courage to tell me yet. And I'll be a son of a gun if she wasn't right. We asked mom the next time there was another child. Uh, The other child was blind and the mother was so so in grief and oddly embarrassment over having a child who could not see that she couldn't, she couldn't acknowledge it. So she put another child, a more well child up front to show us and hid the, hid the one that was in most in need. But I never would have known that. A public health nurse who's used to going into people's homes and sort of sniffing things out, but not always having language to describe what she thought she saw. That's where the wisdom often was. So as you're speaking, I'm thinking it's almost like it was a mystery. Yes. And we're all privileged to be a part of investigating it, not just solving it. The fun was in the investigating of it. It can't can't be an, uh, an accident that people have these mystery dinner parties where they spend hours and hours eating and talking about the mystery. The goal allegedly is to solve it, but why don't they just do it? Why don't they just solve it? No, no, they want to take hours to just sit together and wonder about the mystery. Well, I'm I'm feeling a little ashamed to say, you know, even though I've interacted with you a lot and you have a profound influence on me. I don't think I've ever thought of a case with the word mystery in my mind before. 
it does seem much more interesting and exciting. So then I'm sitting here thinking, okay, if I'm not using that word or thinking that, and I'm not wondering enough, and I'm not curious enough, or whatever, I'm not enough, what am I? What am I? And what are we all doing? What are we doing? What do you see us as doing now? Filling in blanks, filling out paperwork, literally, but also metaphorically. I fear that our minds have often become categorical and sort of like a com computer screen of blanks. So we have to come up with answers to, to questions about what services has been provided, what service should be provided, um, what diagnosis is there, what medication should there be. It's all about filling in blanks rather than wondering about the mystery. Why are we doing that? I think probably for the same reason all of us, uh, whatever it's been now, almost 50 years ago, would have demanded that Freiburg teach us to do that. Because we can't stand, I'm speaking only for myself now, we can't stand helplessness. And there's no better, allegedly, no better cure to helplessness than making stuff up so that the blanks are all full and we can all feel comfortable that we've done our job even when we haven't at all because we haven't solved the mystery. We got that, that class of us after maybe the first 10 months got together on the sly one time, having all come early for a class. And we decided to uh, have a rebellion where we were going to explain in no uncertain terms to the Freiburg team that they were not teaching us properly and were not giving us the answers to the questions we had. And um, so I forgot who was elected to finally to put it out there, but it was a laughable and marvelous scene because in response to this rebellion, the team did not say what one might expect learned teachers to say. They did with us and for us exactly what they expected us to do with and for a mom, which is to wonder, hmm, looks like you're feeling pretty helpless. Looks like you want answers. Looks like you want things to be a lot clearer than they are. Meanwhile, we began to sink in our seats at this outpouring, really, of empathy, because it wasn't fake at all. They were really seeing our rebellion for what it was, the rantings of helpless people in the face of huge dynamics that were potentially overwhelming. And we wanted answers, damn it. We wanted structure. We wanted something to do, some rules. And by golly, they were not only not going to give it to us, but they were going to teach us something about infant mental health psychotherapy in the process. Wow. Um, I think this is going to be a good spot to take a short break because what I want to follow up with um, in continuing this discussion, is there such a drive in people and systems to have what you guys wanted? 
Um, and it, it, it's almost like we, we have to consciously fight against it. If we don't, that's what we'll end up doing and being. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is the third in a 12-part series with Michael Trout. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, or our Podbean page. Be sure to subscribe and tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.